So I have a question for you. It goes along with our sermon, O Ye of Little Fish. It's kind of a big question. It's the kind of question that can change the way that you handle things at home, the way you handle things at work, at school. It's the kind of question that can change your attitude in your neighborhood, the kind of question that can lead to change in how you spend your money, change in how you handle trials and and troubles and difficulties. It could even be a a lead to our church becoming different people, thinking and acting and and serving Jesus different. So that's a pretty good buildup. So what is this question? Well, the question is this, are you a little fish or are you a big fish? I know that's a lot of buildup for a pretty fishy question, right? Little fish or big fish? Or maybe let me ask it another way. Are you a little fish in a big pond or are you a big fish in a little pond? Now, some people say it's always better to be in a big pond. Be a little fish in a big pond because after all, you're, you're in the big pond. I had a very sweet acquaintance of mine. She just recently retired from her custodial position. And I was thinking, what if she had years ago put a resume together? Which, which would have sounded better under the employment section on her resume? The night janitor at Starving Steve's Pizza Warehouse? Or decontamination engineer at Kraft Foods? Yeah, by the way, I'm pretty sure there's not a position known as decontamination engineer at Kraft Foods. And I don't know of a Starving Steve's anywhere. If you find it, take a picture and let me know. But, but you kind of get the picture, right? I mean, Kraft Foods, I mean, that's, a, that's a big, big pond, you know? That's a, that's, a, that's a big deal. So it would be okay to be a, a little fish if you get to say, hey, I was, I was in a big pond. The flip side of that is some people would say it's better to not be that. It's better to be the big fish in the little pond. Like, let's suppose you're the greatest athlete in the history of your high school. I mean, nobody has ever been better than you. And you go to a big school but things don't work the way you thought they were going to work and you end up being 10th string and and you never play and and nothing ever happens. Or you go to a little school and and then you're the big fish. You're you're the starter. You lead your school to a championship. It would be a completely different story. Now, the reality is all of these things could go either way, but you get the idea of the little fish and the big fish and, and what it means to be in which pond. Now, let's think about this in a completely different way. See, we live in a world where there's a lot of positive, nice things that happen. There's some good deeds that happen in the world, a great deal of good things. There's a great deal of fun things that happen in the world. But on the flip side, there are also a lot of negative and dark things that happen in the world. There's a a great deal of evil in the world. There's a great deal of fear in the world. And so... When all that fear and all of that worry and all of that stress and all of that anxiety, when it comes running into your home or your school or your work, when it comes running into your mind, is it better to be a little fish or a big fish? Well, Jesus is going to help us think through that question today. Looking at Luke chapter 12, looking just at verse 32 today. Luke 12, verse 32. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would probably want to say something like this to Jesus. Jesus, that is noble. 
That's really nice. It's just not possible. I mean, there's, there's no way that I can, can never be afraid. All right, let's, let's add another thought from Jesus into this conversation. Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, great. <laughs> now, now I have to be perfect. So that means I can never be afraid because now I have to be perfect. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. When Jesus was talking about being perfect, he was in a conversation with his disciples, and he was talking to them about relationships. Specifically, he was talking to them about relationships with people who hate them and relationships with people who are going to be their enemies. And in that conversation, he begins to talk about the perfection of God. And so what he's saying is, in your relationship with people, your standard is not supposed to be your parents or your grandparents. Your standard is not supposed to be something from the Dalai Lama or from Oprah or from some Beatles songs. That's not the standard of how we pursue relationships. The standard, according to Jesus, is supposed to be the one true God of heaven. That's the standard. So another way of describing this would be, be perfect as God is perfect, would be this, love as God loves. So how does God love? We're going to let the Apostle John kind of walk us through that question. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he writes, God is love. Pretty good simple start, right? God is love. I might eat a donut, but I am not a donut. And you would not see a picture of me next to the word donut in the dictionary. Yet, at least. However, God is love. God's picture was next to the word love before there were words, before there was paper and pens and dictionaries. He has always been love. He is the essence. He is the foundation. He is the definition of love. And so, therefore, because he is the essence of love, God is the one who's strategically connected to the idea of love because he is love. John keeps going. Verse 19, a few sentences later. We love because he first loved us. Because so the math is not hard, right? If you are the basic essence and foundation and definition of love, it would only stand to reason you're the first one to love. And so God, by his very nature, is love. And so God introduced love into the universe. Well, how did God introduce love into the universe? Well, Somebody doesn't stand in the trickling waves of the ocean at the beach at sunrise. And as they stand there, they think to themselves, man, I am so proud of me. <laughs> I'm so happy for me. I, I'm so excited about who I am. I'm so glad that I could make this sunrise happen for other people. No, that's not what we do. At different times, at different places, we stand in creation and we wonder. We stand in awe. We stand in amazement and joy and happiness. We, we can't believe what we're looking at, but we don't think about ourselves. Cecil Alexander said this years ago in a song. He wrote this, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful. The Lord God, he made them all. God made them all. So we have God very specifically 
introducing love through creation, very specifically. But God also very strategically has introduced love to the world. John 3, verse 16, this is from the Amplified Classic Version. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten unique son so that whoever believes in, trusts in, clings to, relies on him shall not perish or come to destruction or be lost, but have eternal, everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave over his son to rescue the world and give the world hope. And with passion and purpose and joy and energy and love, Jesus gave himself over to rescue the world and to give the world hope. Creation is a most specific way of God introducing his love to the world. But salvation in Jesus Christ is a most strategic, the most strategic way that God has introduced his love to the world. So when it comes to love, the way we're supposed to love other people is supposed to be based on the romantic comedy movie that you watched this weekend or the country ballads that you listened to in the car on the way to church. You know who you are. That's how we're supposed to love, right? Based on those things. No, that's not how we're supposed to love. The standard of love that we use, the standard is God's love. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Rise out of ordinary manhood. Get beyond what others might expect of you. Stretch towards the highest conceivable standard. And be not satisfied until you reach it. Be not satisfied until you reach it. Now you may be thinking at this point, what's the deal? (laughs) You started this thing off with Jesus telling us not to be afraid. And and now you're in this whole love thing. What's, What's the love thing have to do with it? Well, let me borrow some language from Spurgeon. When it comes to being afraid, rise out of ordinary manhood. When it comes to being afraid, get beyond what others might expect of you. When it comes to being afraid, stretch towards the highest conceivable standard and be not satisfied until you reach it. So what is that standard? Do not be afraid. (laughs) I know you're thinking, we just made a circle. We're right back at the same place. This thing that's impossible, this this thing that I can't do. All right, let's try to put this in some real life situations and and see if it can help us out. So you're in the emergency room, which a couple of you have been this week, right? So you're in the emergency room and, and you're waiting for the doctor to bring you some results. You might be a little afraid. You might be a little worried, might be a little anxious. Or you're in the locker room, and you're waiting for the coach to come post the names of the people that didn't make the final cut. Might be a little afraid, might be a little worried, a little anxious. Or you're in the office of your accountant, and you're waiting for them to come and and tell you how much you're going to owe on your taxes this year. You might be a little afraid, a a little worried, a little anxious. Or you're sitting in your car, And you're waiting for someone to come check on you because somebody else just ran a light and and hit you. You might be a little afraid and might be a little worried, a little anxious. And so in those moments, what Jesus is not doing 
is he is not saying, ooh, ooh, I, I saw you, you were afraid. I'm going to tell dad and you're going to be in trouble. That's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, what Jesus is saying is this. Through the clear message of the gospel, he's saying, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be stressed. It is okay to stop. How? Why? Well, because no matter what the doctor says, no matter what the coach says, no matter what the accountant says, no matter what the insurance adjuster says, no matter what happens in any of those moments, it can never change the fact that you are loved. You're loved. You're you're loved with a radical love that can't be described. If you're not a Christian, God so loves you. And here's why. Before you were born, before you existed, God made a way for you to be rescued from the penalty of your sin and rescued from the daily guilt of your failure. God did that before you were born. See, the very nature of who Jesus is is a rescuer and a savior, and he died to rescue and save and give you hope. So turn to him if you have not and find salvation and find life. But if you ignore Jesus, if you reject Jesus, then please know that fear will leach itself onto your soul and it will never go away even after you die. So turn to Jesus. If you are a Christian, in all of those kinds of moments, you don't have to be afraid because you are so loved. God, by the very nature of his being, even if you get the absolute worst news you possibly can in one of those moments, it cannot change the love of God. And the love of God for your life cannot disappear, it cannot fade, it cannot fail. And what God has prepared for you after you die, you cannot even imagine how satisfying it will be. And yet right there is is a bit of the rub for some folks. Will be. Wait a minute, so you're you're saying I, I can't have it now. You're saying that I may not get what I'm looking for today or what I think I need. This might be a real wimpy way of, of thinking about this, but remember Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka? Remember Veruca? Remember her song? I want to party with roomfuls of laughter, 10,000 tons of ice cream. And if I don't get the things I'm after, I'm going to scream. I want the works. I want the whole works. Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises in all shapes and sizes. And now, I don't care how, I want it now. Remember Veruca? How did things turn out for Veruca? She was a bad egg that went down the garbage chute to the furnace. And there's really nothing good about that part of the story, right? So let me just graciously say with everything is in me, do everything for your own sake, not to think and act like Veruca Salt. Don't be a bad egg demanding your way. And be very careful about having an attitude toward God that's demanding. 
an attitude that says, well, God, this is what I think I want, or this is what I think I need, and, and I want the presence and the surprises, and, and God, this is what I'm expecting, and this is what I think I should deserve. Be very careful with that way of thinking. It never leads you to a good place. What does lead you to a good place is the truth about Jesus. See, this is what the love of Jesus has done. Jesus gave himself up. He gave himself over to rescue you. And he gave himself over to die for you in a very real and violent way. And the very nature of who he is and what he has accomplished, he did so that we would not fix our eyes on the temporary things but that we would fix our eyes on the promise that he died to purchase, a promise that is filled with eternal life and eternal satisfaction. If we were to lay it out in conjugation, you are loved. You are being loved. And one day, ultimately, in a a way that you can't imagine, you will be loved for all eternity and you will be satisfied. All of that is what happens in Christ. I like how one recent song has put it. In your hearts, if your heart's in a thousand pieces, if you're lost and you're far from reason, just look up and know you're loved. When it feels like something's missing, if it hurts but you can't find healing, just look up and know you are loved. Now, somebody say, ah, that sounds a little cheesy. Just look up and you'll find love. How do I know that's going to work? I mean, how do I even know there's a God up there? And how do I know that his love is real? And, and how do I know that anything about this Jesus and believing in him is really going to pay off? This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the idea of looking up for love is not that we would look up and and maybe a shooting star will happen. Or maybe I'll see my initials spelled out in the clouds. That's not the idea. The idea of looking up is that when we look up, we are fixing our eyes on the manger. And we're fixing our eyes on the cross. And we're fixing our eyes on the empty tomb as real, historical, practical events. And not just real, historical, practical events, but supernatural events where the God of the universe came to earth to save. I love how the old hymn puts it. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that that I'm saved? I know that I'm saved because the tomb of Jesus is empty. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
And so when I look up, what I am doing is reminding my heart and my mind that the manger is real and the cross is real and the empty tomb is real. Therefore, my faith and my salvation in Jesus Christ is more real than the shirt on my back because the shirt on my back will fade and rip and tear. It might be given to the thrift store. It might go in the trash. But the love of Jesus Christ for me is so perfect and complete. It will never rip. It will never tear. It will never fade. It will never disappear. It will never be thrown away, and it will never fail. That's salvation in Jesus. So when I start getting afraid, which I do, when I start getting stressed, which I do, when I start getting worried and anxious, which I do, I have every reason to say to my soul, soul, you don't have to do that. Soul, you you can stop. It's okay. Because soul, you are complete in Jesus. Soul, you are not right now dead in your sin. You are not broken in your failures. You are not suffocating in your fear. You are saved. You are free. You are complete in Jesus. So you don't have to be afraid. That is the crazy, cool way from Jesus for us to deal with fear. And then he gives us two more crazy, cool words to use with that. Look at the next part of verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. When Jesus said this, he was in a crowd of thousands of people, but he was talking directly to his closest friends. Now, here's a question. Why would the closest friends of Jesus be afraid? What would they be afraid about? Well, they had all just kind of left their normal jobs and their normal lives. So they might have been afraid about how they were going to put food on the table. They might have been afraid about how they were going to get their kids through the college over there in Jerusalem. They might be afraid about whether or not they were going to be able to to put enough money away so that when they turned 60, they wouldn't have to work for Jesus anymore. Just a, just a quick note of encouragement. It is biblically sound and practically wise to save money and plan for the future in every way, shape, and form. But as believers, we really need to do, be wise about the modern concept of retirement. The, the modern ideas or some modern ideas about retirement are in conflict with the gospel. Pastor Rick Warren says something very interesting about that. He says, what is taught in Scripture is a transition. You may change jobs. You may change vocations. You may volunteer for free. But there is nothing that says you work most of your life and then you get to be selfish for the next 20 years. There's a lot of truth in that. See, for believers, we may retire from a vocation, but we don't retire. There's not a time that we stop working for the Lord. But maybe some of those things were what the disciples were worried about. So here they are in this moment of huge transition in their life. In this moment, they were afraid. And how do we know that? Well, Jesus is talking to them and, and he says, don't be afraid. So, so it had to be that he knew they were afraid of money or practical things or whatever it may be. And so here in this conversation, he, he calls them something. In the middle of their fear, in the middle of their anxiety, their worry and their stress, even if it was just swirling around in their minds, Jesus calls them something. He calls them little flock. There's about a hundred different cool things we could say about him using those two words. I'm I'm just going to use one of them and break it down in two parts. And here's the first part. If you're a Christian, 
You are not part of a big flock. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And then Jesus says this in verse 14. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So if what Jesus said was true, and his track record so far is perfect, if what Jesus said is true, then there will never be a a Christian world, and there will never be a true Christian nation until Jesus returns, because only Jesus can establish that. And so the, the picture we have here in terms of our fear is this. The world is never going to go along with what Jesus is saying. They never are. The world's never going to go along with this idea of not being afraid. You know, the Home Office in Canton, Massachusetts says that America runs on Duncan. But you know what? If you just take a few minutes to look at the media, to look at politics, look at entertainment, other things in our culture, it's not hard to see that it sure seems like that our world is running on fear, sinful fear. Forget the media and and entertainment. Let's just think about your conversations this past week. Think of the people that you've talked to this last week, maybe at home, at work, at school, wherever you've been. How many of those conversations had confident statements in God's power and authority and love? How many of those conversations this past week had, had confident statements about the promises that Jesus has already fulfilled and the incredible promises that Jesus is going to fulfill? Or how many of your conversations this week have been marked with fear and worry and stress and complaints and whining and anxiety about things at work and at school, things with your spouse, things with your kids, things with your taxes, or maybe the state of things in our country? See, Jesus is trying to help his friends not be controlled by sinful fear. Listen, sinful fear will always be popular. It's always been popular. It will always be popular. And you can pick it up for free just about anywhere. And so Jesus is trying to tell his friends, don't pick it up. You, you, you don't have to keep picking it up. Why? Well, he tells them, you're, you're part of God's little flock. This is great. Jesus is saying, you, you're a little fish in a big pond, but the owner of the pond knows you. He loves you. He he is caring for you. And there's no way he could ever fail you. It's great to be a little fish. It's great to be in God's little flock. And Jesus gives us another reason. Look at the last part of verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Not a kingdom t-shirt. Not a kingdom magnet, not a kingdom keychain. But in Christ, God the Father, the one true God of the universe, he has gladly chosen to give you a complete and perfect place in his kingdom. That's amazing. There's a story told about a pastor in Germany during World War II. He was at the church one night for their weekly Bible study. There was just two little old ladies and one little old man joining him that night, just just the four of them. During Bible study, some of Hitler's troops came marching by. It was a a big deal. It was like a parade. 
It was loud. There was bands playing, and, and there were these cheers, these different cheers that were being shouted outside the windows of the church. Some of those cheers went like this. Hitler is Lord. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to Hitler. There is no king but Hitler. Can you imagine being in that Bible study that night and hearing that loudly outside the window? Well, that loud commotion, that, that loud cheering, that scary cheering, it caused a little bit of, of fear and trembling in that pastor and those three little old people. But their fear and their trembling didn't have to last long. You see, they were in Bible study. They, they had God's word open. And so they were immediately able to remind themselves that those cheers were lies. Those cheers were not true. See, they knew that they were little sheep, but they knew they had a great shepherd. And they knew their great shepherd had a kingdom, the kingdom, the final kingdom. And they knew their great shepherd was the one true king of that kingdom. And that his kingdom cannot and will not fail. So what is Jesus saying to me and you today that he didn't say to his friends? Nothing different. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your good, good father is a king.